another race I won in in Austria, there was a group of maybe eight, and that that was just a straight up sprint. So um, yeah, interestingly enough, second place in that race was Pojikar. So that's always a fun fact. I like to keep in the back pocket. <laughs> that is a good one to pull out at parties. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, maybe while you're watching the tour this year, you can say to you know all everyone who's around, I I, I beat that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll just leave out that he was like 17 at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast. I'm Matthew Piaro. In this episode, I speak with Adam DeVos, who just passed the two-year mark as national champion. Part of the reason I wanted to speak with DeVos for this episode was to mark that unusual milestone, especially as other countries held national championships just a few weeks ago. Adam DeVos has been a pro since 2015. He's a rider whose results have largely been at a simmer and occasionally bubble up. He won a 1.2 level one-day race in Austria in 2017. That year, he led an important race in the North American scene, the Joe Martin stage race. He was at the top of the GC for most of the event. In 2018, DeVos won a stage of the Tour of Langkawi and held the yellow jersey for two days. But as with most riders, the results only tell part of the rider's story. DeVos and I go off bike in parts of our chat. He can throw a punch. So I asked him about that as well as his interest in wine. So here's pugilist, enophile, but most of all, cyclist, Adam DeVos. Adam DeVos, this episode is out July 1st. You are now into your second year as the national road race champion. That's two years with the Maple Leaf as part of your jersey. How do you feel about that? It's been a fun, uh, fun extra little time. I honestly, with everything with Corona and race cancellations and uh, and all that, I doubt I've even had, well, maybe coming up on a full year, one year's worth of race days, but it's been a nice uh, little extra time and I haven't had to worry about, you know, missing out on, on having races uh in the jersey so it's been great thank you what do you remember most from the national road race way back in 2019 in quebec's post region it feels like a long time ago yeah i feel like nationals for me is always kind of stressful uh and i'm sure for everyone i was talking to some of my u.s teammates the other day about nationals and i don't think uh i don't think it's a very easy race to predict or to to kind of have a set plan for. So, um, yeah, I just remember it. It's always a lot of pressure to be in the right moves and to, to always be racing in the front, especially in Canada. I think um, if you look back at it, you it probably ends up being that the winner is always kind of in the front group and never having to come from, from groups behind. And uh, that was kind of my strategy for that day and, and the team strategy to just have always as many of us in the front as possible. And yeah, I think it was it was great. We won. I, uh, again, our U.S. guys. I think that was their first men's road title uh, that they won last week, and 
uh, I know we had Teo and myself in just since I've been on the team. So I think we're doing pretty well. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned uh, Teo. That's Matteo Dalsin, who was the champion uh, a few years ago. And yeah, your teammate, Joey Roscoff, uh, recently took the U.S. title. So yeah, your team is is doing all right with the um, the national titles. And we'll get more into to rally cycling in a bit. But returning back to, to 2019, that was in the Bose region. And you know that area pretty well. You raced Tour de Bose five times, including um, a few weeks before nationals that year. Did that help you with your win? Um, that's funny that I raced it five times. I, I think I've only finished it maybe even once. Because I, 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 I think it was just one. Yeah, I, I mean, I know the first year I was just out of my depth, and then um, I got Noro. I think t- two years, and then I don't know. Oh, I crashed hard one year, and I think I broke or almost broke my wrist. So that yeah, that just leaves the one year. So it's funny to even think I've done it five times, but for sure that that nationals course is. Um, I think we've done nationals on it at least maybe three times that I've done it. And then it's also so often the, the first stage of both. So I think it, everyone in Canadian cycling knows it quite well at this point. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a good course. It's a balanced course. I guess, long story short, I think it, it's, it's helpful to do both and to know it. But I think most of the contenders at this point, they all, everyone knows it really well. So maybe not an advantage, but definitely helpful. As we mentioned, you have a uh, your teammate Joey Roscoff is the the recent U.S. champ, so that means um, Alex Howes only had the stars and stripes for exactly two years. And uh, but other nations have had their their national championships. France and Italy, they they didn't even miss a beat uh, last year. It seems they they also had their nationals. Canada, like Britain, won't have a new champion or won't have new champions until later this year. What are your thoughts on that big gap between nationals for Canadians? And I mean, uh, for cycling as a whole, like I know for you personally, it was nice to, like you said, without all that racing going on because of the pandemic, you got to hold the jersey and it seems a little more just <laughs> that you keep it. But um, yeah, what do you think that means, the big gap just for uh, Canadian uh, racing? Well, first of all, shout out to to Joey and the American guys for winning that and also his great ride at Suisse. And yeah, I, I definitely like for, for me personally, like I said, just the amount of racing that I've actually done in the jersey is probably quite comparable to a normal year. But I definitely I felt for especially Mads Peterson to win to win worlds and then have almost no time of actually racing in the jersey. That's that had to be a little disappointing, just the way they started racing, basically just before the the worlds in Italy. As far as Canada goes, and not having it, it's just the nature of how how the Canadian government handled the pandemic. It was quite strict, maybe compared to Europe, and I think that's that's a good thing. But just uh, sports and and that kind of stuff suffered from that, understandably. So. It is what it is as far as politics and, and government policy. But for me, I wasn't stressing about having another Nationals too soon. Do you think you'll be back to defend your title this September? At this point, I, I really don't know because the when it's scheduled is overlapping with at least two races the team is doing. And we only have 17 guys. So to send 
a bunch of us to Canada and, and take us out of the team kind of rotation is, I don't know if that's on the table at this point. So I can't, I can't answer for sure one way or another, but it would be nice to be able to have a, a clean shot at defending, but it is what it is with the team obligations and all that. I want to go back in time now. How did you get started in cycling? I started uh, in my grad year of high school in grade 12. There was a, a club that started up at school and I'd already had a road bike from uh, just, I bought one just to, to ride around and I would ride after dinner sometimes. But yeah, it started in high school and there was a couple of little, like really small high school races, like five people there would be. And then I got connected with a local club and I started doing like midweek Wednesday night races, which would be not exclusively young people, but all ages, uh, like ABC categories, that kind of stuff. And yeah, I just got hooked from there. So I started maybe in, in March of my grad year. And then the following year, I did a camp in the winter with Cycling BC and then race with them at Nationals and and a few other races earlier in the year. And then I was selected for Worlds in Denmark that year. And the rest is history, I guess. What did you like about cycling? What, what, what was it that... Um captured your imagination and and made you want to race? I came from being a competitive swimmer. So I think just the uh, aspect that it was so much more dynamic and variable and you got to see something different every time you you were out there instead of just the same pool over and over again. I think that was a big draw for me. And I was just competitive. So I liked racing. And yeah, once I started racing, I was kind of hooked. Some of your early outfits as you were as you were coming up, were some pretty um, small but important um, Vancouver-based teams. There was a Trek Red Truck and later H and R Block Pro Cycling. Now, this these are uh, these years that you were on these teams ranged from I believe 2012 to 2015. What did those teams give you, or how did they uh, help you in your career and your development? Yeah, both of those teams were great, and um, Trek Red Truck is definitely still around. H&R was until maybe the last couple of years a really important team for Canadian riders. Uh, Trek, that was my first kind of like real team to be on, and it was just, we had a great environment, and Steve Eng put together like a really great group of sponsors that were really involved. They would come to our team camp in Santa Rosa, and it was always a really great time. We'd have a really nice schedule in the Pacific Northwest and in Washington and Oregon and all the stuff in BC, of course, along with Bose and Nationals. So that was just a great kind of stepping stone of support just to be taken into the team and not have like a financial burden to be able to race was huge. And then with with H&R Block, the first year was probably pretty similar to Trek. And then the second year actually became a continental team and we raced basically all the all the North American UCI races. And that was kind of the year I got some good results at Redlands and and uh, and Gila, what else, Winston-Salem, that kind of string of races, Philly. Sorry, you were KOM at Philly, if I, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, I was KOM at Philly. Um, I think I was fifth at Redlands GC, uh, seventh at Gila GC, and then somewhere in the top. Top 10 or something, maybe 11th or 12th at, at Winston-Salem. So yeah, then I began from there speaking to, to rally. So that was kind of, that was definitely a huge part of my career and trajectory to to um, just have that upgrade from just racing in kind of non-use air races to having a full 
full calendar of North American UCI races when it was, I mean, there was a lot more stuff even in 2015 than there is now, which is, is kind of sad for those Canadians and younger American people trying to come up now. I think it's, it's you need to have a different path than just trying to race UCI races in, in the North America. Yeah, that brings up a good point because even before the the pandemic <laughs> decimated racing here in North America, it, there seemed to be a decline in yeah the the number of races in North America. Like Canada was lucky; we had a Tour of Alberta, which you attended, uh, raced at a few times. Yeah, Philly disappeared. Yeah, so many races were gone. Oh, Tour of California, of course. So. What is these? What are these alternative paths that maybe the kids these days need to start looking at? Even just going back to what you said about Canada not having nationals and all that, I think it's been really difficult for younger Canadians and um, probably Americans too. I think maybe they've had a little more racing, but even just to travel, if you did, you did want to get yourself to Europe and race on an amateur team, like. Uh, I don't even think the travel was really feasible for quite a while. Even a lot of our guys on our team had difficulty getting visas and this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's been really difficult with the pandemic. And even before that, the race calendar was always on the decline. Uh, So as far as a different path, I see a lot of people um, going to like France, racing in French amateur teams, which are well supported and well well taken care of with good schedules. So I think that's kind of, at least right now, maybe the only option to to get a good amount of racing in. But it's it's tough to be, I don't know, 18, 19 and, and doing that. You joined Rally in 2016. Cycling teams are notoriously impermanent organizations, yet Rally's management team, Circuit Sport, has been keeping things going since 2007. What's the secret to that team's longevity? That's a good question. It is nice to be part of an organization that, you know, has such a good track record of of being stable and keeping going, especially in cycling. It's so volatile. So I think, uh, yeah, it's just a good environment to be in, to, to be able to not worry too much about that kind of aspect of it. I think the secret, uh, it's, I'm not 100% sure, but I think, Charles Aaron, the owner, does a great job of acquiring sponsors and really working with them to to make sure they're getting what they need out of the arrangement. And um, that ensures they're happy and they want to stick around. And then above that, I think it's it's helpful that he can focus on that. And then we have directors to focus on the racing aspect and, and other staff for the media aspect and promotion in that way. So... I think part of it is that there's enough staff that everyone has a role and they can really focus on it. And then that in turn can keep the sponsors um, happy and engaged. Do you think maybe it's also the the team is maybe or the organization is slightly conservative? And what I mean by that is it started in 07 and it was uh, continental for a long, long, long time. It didn't go pro-conti until 2018. From uh, the outside, it seemed maybe it could have gone pro Conti earlier than that. You've seen uh, much, um, say, less stable outfits <laughs> get to that level. So, yeah, do you think it's also they're just careful at circuit sport? Yeah, I, d- I definitely think that's 
probably a big part of it. Like you said, there's been teams like Aqua Blue and stuff that have come out of nowhere and, and raced Pro Conti and done the Volta and stuff. And then a couple years later, they're, they're gone completely. So I think the slow, steady growth is definitely a huge part of, of being able to be stable and just manage uh, manage your resources. And I do, I do think um, it takes a lot, a lot more resources to be a North American pro-continental team as far as budget, budget for travel, budget for just moving stuff around, moving routers and, and equipment around. So it, it takes a lot for sure. You're in your sixth season with Rally. What's the secret of your longevity? <laughs> yeah, I think there's now three of us that um, joined the same year in 2016. I, I, I don't know if I can answer. I don't know if I know... Um, I'll have to think about it for a second. I just, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I honestly don't know. I always think of Rally. It's a U.S. pro team, but I always think of it as secretly Canadian. There's always a good bunch of Canadians on the men's and women's squads. There's Canucks in management, in the team cars, fixing bikes even. I'm wondering if, from your perspective, do you sense a Canadian influence in the team, or does the team more reflect you know the country it's based in it's it's really nice to have a, a lot of canadians and there's there's Wahlberg, there's five riders rick barrow was working with the team for a long time as a mechanic so it is great to have a group of canadians and uh i think maybe we like insulate each other a little bit from the american aspect uh i'm often racing with teo and and pierre and zook and not as much Rob. He's often on different races, but yeah, we kind of stick together. But uh, I think there's definitely also some American American bias in in the team, and that's fine. That's where they're they're from. But it's great that they're willing to have a big contingent of Canadian riders, and especially without Silver and H and R Block now, it's kind of um, maybe a third a third home team for Canadians to be on. What type of rider were you when you joined Rally? I, I think when we were racing more in the States, I could kind of climb a little better in the States and be in those races. Uh, and it's just when you're racing in the States, you kind of have to do all of the same races. There wasn't kind of, we always had 16 riders, I think, but there was never, um, never like two races really happening at once for us. And then as we've raced more in Europe, it's like the level of climbing is so high that I've just kind of become more just focused on the one-day races and those are the races I get sent to. And yeah, it's, it's more my style and it's something I enjoy racing uh, more in Belgium, France in those one-day classic type races. Rally seems good at ensuring there is um, a range of experience and youth on the squad. You've ridden with Danny Pate and Swain Tuft in, in the latter parts of their careers. What have you learned from those riders? And I guess especially Pate, uh, whom you spent more time with. Yeah, Danny and I were um, were always very close on the team. And I would stay at his house in Colorado Springs often. And um, yeah, it was interesting to be with teammates with those guys. And they had different styles for sure. And Danny, um, it's hard to like just pick stuff out of the air that he taught me. It was more just overall stuff in the races that you would pick up on and and um, if you flat out asked him something, he would probably just make fun of you for a little while. And then a day later, he would he would often come back with like a really thoughtful answer where he'd asked 
asked someone from Sky or one of his old, old teammates and and got you like a really thoughtful answer, even though you thought he was just <laughs> going to blow you off. So I always really uh, enjoyed being teammates with Danny. I miss I miss having that. Do you ever think you will be in a role of, of senior rider, um, you know, laughing at young riders' questions, but then uh, finding a really good answer for them? Yeah, it's possible. Who knows? Um, maybe another six years on rally, I'll be in that in that role. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Take your time. He's yeah. into the role. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's pause for a moment on cycling. Uh, I want to talk boxing. There's a video clip of you in boxing gloves hitting a heavy bag. It's dated... March 27th, that's the day before you raced the one-day Cholet Pays de la Loire. It's a, yeah, a one-day race in France. Tell me more about that clip. I'd been boxing throughout 2020 and, and the winter with my brother. He's, uh, he's a pretty good boxer, and we would do it together. I think if there was one thing uh, from the pandemic that was nice, it was I got to spend a lot more time with him. And... Just all my family and friends at home and girlfriends. So, um, yeah, we'd been, been training a lot of boxing and with the, with the mitts and using the heavy bags. So when I got to my first accommodation in in Spain, it was an Airbnb that I had for five weeks, maybe five or six weeks. And it turns out it had a, a really nice patio, which I knew about when I was booking it, but it had a, a heavy bag hanging up, which... <laughs> was a complete surprise and I'd, I'd brought my gloves I I don't know I thought I was gonna like try and find a, a gym or something just to go to the odd time um, but it turns out there, there was a, a heavy bag right in my Airbnb so I used it uh, quite a bit before I had to move out of there and uh, yeah right before I left for France I was just using it. Now what does boxing give a cyclist or like what can can there be any like cross training effect? How does it help you in any way? Uh, that's a good question. It might be a, a little bit of a stretch to call it cross training, but it's definitely a, a crazy cardio workout and uh, and a core core workout. Like um, I didn't box for maybe the last couple of months I was in Europe, and then when I got home and and did it again with my brother the next day, my you just feel it really across your whole core and your your sides. So. I definitely think there's some benefit to it. Um, direct cross training is maybe a stretch, but there's also the reflexes and that kind of aspect that is uh, pretty important in cycling to have reflexes and and good hand eye like that. So there's some crossover, but <laughs> I'm sure there's better cross training out there. No, I think the core part is is kind of interesting because well, that's something I at least over here in the masters category we tend to neglect our core a lot. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Usually, uh, road cyclists don't seem to be able to throw punches. Every few years, there's a dust-up at a race. And I'm usually more embarrassed for the riders trying to slug one another. And, you know, sure, they might be on a bike even, or in road shoes. But, like, hockey players can throw punches on ice. What's what's wrong with cyclists, do you think? Why are they such? Why are they so bad at throwing punches? Oh, uh, I think it's just a different a different world. But that's what I'm training for, that one time that it goes down in a race. No, I'm just <laughs> um, I I think it's just, uh, it's a lot of technique, but I, I definitely haven't mastered it, but it's it's kind of, you know, something you got to learn. I'm not, I'm not a master, but uh, if I 
tried to pick up another sport, I'm sure it would be just as embarrassing. So you can't really blame cyclists. Fair enough, fair enough. Who knows what a boxer would look like on Alpe d'Huez, you know? Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, there, I mean, there's lots of videos of McGregor training on a bike and he looks kind of funny. So. All right, all right, <laughs> maybe there we go. Um, you know, uh, equal opportunity humiliation, maybe. Yeah, he's always riding uh, like no-handed, just just on a mountain bike on, on the street. It's kind of funny. <laughs> And we'll be back to hear more from Adam DeVos after a message about this episode's sponsor. There's a race here in Ontario that is pretty much guaranteed to give most riders leg cramps, especially on its final climb. On one edition of the race, I found a nice spot of grass past the finish to writhe around in pain. A colleague of mine came upon me and started taking photos. I, of course, shouted at him to stop. This taught me about a horrible side effect of leg cramps, other than the pain, that I didn't know about. That side effect is terribly, terribly unflattering photos. What causes leg cramps? They can be caused by many factors, including dehydration, fatigue, and vitamin and or mineral deficiencies. Leg cramps can also be a side effect of some prescription medications. But the exact cause of muscle cramps is not always known. What can you do about leg cramps? There are Highlands Leg Cramps Tablets. They are a natural health product made with gentle active ingredients for strong relief of leg cramps and leg pain. Highlands Leg Cramps Tablets can be taken when you start getting a muscle cramp to relieve pain. Each tablet dissolves quickly under your tongue and you don't need water. To find out more about Highlands Leg Cramps, visit highlands.ca. And now back to my conversation with Adam DeVos. You have a collection of jerseys. Let me rattle off a few. There's uh, a leader's jersey from stage two of the 2016 Green Mountain Stage Race. There's the KOM jersey from the first stage of the 2017 Volta Al Algarve. Um, You led the Joe Martin Stage Race for three stages in 2017, and you led the Tour of Langkawi for two stages in 2018. What do those jerseys mean to you? It's a nice collection, I guess. It would have been nicer if I actually won them all rather than just <laughs> leading them for a portion, of course. But uh, I guess when I initially started cycling, I always thought that um, that was a really cool aspect of the sport was to be able to differentiate the leaders and, and have these kind of sub-competitions uh, within the races. And then, of course, the national champion jersey I thought was really cool to have that for every country and have a a special custom jersey. So it was kind of always a goal to win one or have one at some point. And I mean, I guess I've surpassed that goal of just (laughs) having one. So I like them all and they're all a little different. And it's cool to have these different jerseys from different brands and different, different kind of color combinations. So yeah, they're all, they're all cool and special. Right. But I guess, as you mentioned, the your national jersey is like that is one you you didn't just hold for a few days. It is yours. You won it. For sure. Yeah, that's the most special for sure. You lost the Joe Martin stage race to Robin Carpenter. He joined your team the next year. Have you forgiven him? (laughs) Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't harbor too much grudge. Uh, Robin was definitely on fire 
in in those races uh, a lot of years actually. I can't just say one year. So um, yeah, he was a, a good competitor, but he's a great guy to have on the team as well. So no hard feelings. How many different ways can you win a race? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say, I mean, there's really only three ways to win. There's uh, like a solo win. There's a a small bunch sprint win, and then there's a big bunch sprint win. So maybe solo or a small bunch sprint, I think I could have a good chance at winning. Probably not a a huge 150 rider field sprint. I don't think I have much of a chance. Yeah, I'm thinking of some of your wins, and your stage win in Langkawi was out of a breakaway, and even your nationals win, I think it was it was down to about three or four of you, and you. Wait, you bridged over to Nigel, Nigel Elsay, I think, and then attacked. Is that how it went down? Yeah, it was. It was pretty all pretty late in the race, so it was kind of a half half sprint, half attack. Um, Langkawi was definitely a late attack. I think two kilometers to go from our our group, and then another race I won in in Austria. There was a group of maybe eight, and that that was just a straight up sprint. So. Um, yeah, interestingly enough, second place in that race was Pojikar. So that's always a fun fact. I like to keep in the back pocket. <laughs> that is a good one to pull out at parties. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, maybe while you're watching the tour this year, you can say to, you know, all everyone who's around, I, I, I beat that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll just leave out that he was like 17 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> What's a race you're proud of, but one that doesn't, necessarily have a jersey or a win attached to it for me it would probably be the the 2017 tour of california i was riding as far as my own form went like really well and i was just uh kind of in the zone in training beforehand and uh on one of the stages the mount hamilton stage i was in like a really small group and i uh i crashed on one of the descents before the finish and that was kind of a disappointment and even still I was doing pretty well on GC I think maybe top 15 or top 20 as as a world tour race I was pretty happy with that and then the last day I just had a really bad day and I lost all that time and position I had on GC um, I think personally that was a disappointment way to finish and have that crash in the other stage but then the team just did so well that year with two stage wins it was just amazing and it kind of it overshadowed and washed away the the personal disappointment so that was uh still a really good race for the team and a good memory to have you have a tattoo of a fox chasing a rabbit you also have a cheetah on the move what can you tell me about these animals running full tilt yeah i have the the fox um that's kind of connected to my last name devos in dutch means the fox and um, the cheetah, the cheetah is, uh, that's just my favorite animal. So I got that too. And then um, since then, I also got a kingfisher. Uh, and that's kind of part of just a representation of someone in my family. So it's kind of animal, animal kingdom tattoos, but it's fun. I like them. That's kind of, uh, I guess, the only things I've really thought that I wanted and, and gone through with. So I think I saw someone teasing you about that on Instagram 
calling it Noah's Ark. <laughs> yeah. That, that might have been Robin Carpenter. No, I think it was Seb. <laughs> I think it was Seb. Oh, that's, that's right. Seb Quist, your former teammate. What's one of the worst races you've ever had? Probably in 2016 at Tour of Utah, I crashed in uh, Nature Valley or, or North Star, or whatever it was called at that time. Um, and I broke some ribs and I punctured a lung and I didn't break my pelvis, but it was like badly sprained my groin. So I, at one point I thought I broke my pelvis, but I was off the bike for quite a while and um, just had really terrible form heading into that race. And I told the team like, hey, I've been, I haven't ridden for whatever, three weeks or something. Do you want to send me to, uh, there was another race going on at the same time, I think Tour of Guadalupe. Do you want to send me there instead? And they're like, no, it's, it's fine. You can go to Utah still. And I just said no form going in. And that's such a hard race to do, um, even at the best of times. So that was kind of a miserable week. So then what's your takeaway from that? Do you think, did since then, were you ever like, you know, uh, I'm not ready for this race? Did you ever make that call for yourself? Yeah, there's definitely been times when I've not been confident with form heading into a race. But I think, um, I don't know, maybe maybe that you can just get through most races, just even if it's suffering on your knees, that you can find a way to get through. Or maybe that it's a motivation to have good form so you're not suffering like a dog in, in any race that you do. Um, your teammate, Rob Britton, by, famously, in, at least in, in, in our circles in Canadian cycling, famously bike packs, um, uh, also for training. Is, and, you know, as you know, gravel is so hot right now. Um, it, does any of that alternative racing uh, attract you? As far as the racing, I would say, yeah, for sure. Robin Carpenter just did Unbound Gravel. Um, that's something I'd be interested in. I think it kind of suits my style, just riding really hard for a long time. I did some pretty pretty long rides um, last April, I think, when I was at home in the pandemic. So yeah, something like that as a race, I think would interest me as far as doing what Rob does and going out in the wilderness and bikepacking, uh, that not so much kind of a, a city boy. And uh, I famously in the team like to ride the same route over and over again when I'm at home. So <laughs> the exploring aspect isn't as much up my alley. So I'll leave that to him maybe. Interesting. You can take the swimmer out of the, the lane, but the, the, the swimmer then sort of finds his favorite routes on uh, when he's biking around Victoria. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think of it like that. <laughs> How many bottles of wine did you bring back from your last trip to Europe? I think it was somewhere between six and eight. I think eight by the time I was on the plane. I got one in the, the Paris Duty Free is actually pretty good. So I got one there too. Uh, have you ever tried to move that much wine before? No, that was a, a big job. And I actually, um, before I was packing up the last, the last of my stuff in... Uh, in Europe to come home, I I had all the wine separate. It had never gone in my suitcase congruently with all the other stuff that was kind of laying around. So uh, the last night, it was a, a big job to kind of make everything fit and put the puzzle together. And some stuff had to had to stay in Europe, at least for this time. 
No. So wait, you you there was some other uh, gear or whatever that you left in Europe, but the wine made it home. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I had like a extra pair of shoes, cycling shoes, and an extra pair of like running shoes. And then uh, what else did I have? Maybe some. Oh, I think I left like a helmet and just some stuff that I had. I knew I had uh, extras of at home, but I could afford to leave it there. But yeah, I had to make room for the wine. Your interest in wine, I understand, is, well, fairly recent, maybe the last year or so that, um, yeah, it's caught your attention? Yeah, probably, I guess, at the start of the pandemic. So a year and a half at this point, I guess. Well, not quite, but yeah, it's it's new, but I, I try and... Um, I try and learn as much as I can whenever I can and, and read books and textbooks about it and just um, try and kind of master it as much as I can. But it's such a wide, wide world that I don't think uh, you can really master it as an enthusiast amateur. You really need to <laughs> drill down and make it a career if you want to master it. What drew you into wine? Like what piqued your interest? It's just such a like interesting product in that it's really made of one thing but it can take so many forms and be so different in uh in in its like final expression so it's just an interesting um interesting to me it's a bit like coffee in that you can uh get really really into it really nerdy about it and it's it's a pretty basic product but um when you start to really think about it and thoughtfully consider it as you're consuming it you can notice a lot of nuance to it you enjoy travel, and and cycling can put you in touch with, with places like few other things. Uh, wine is very much a product of its place. So I'm wondering, um, is your interest in wine maybe also an extension of your passion for travel and even cycling to some extent? There's definitely parallels, for sure. And it's something I, I always really enjoy going to new countries and... Um, like exploring new places. I think every year I've been on the team, I've raced in at least one new country. Um, it's definitely a part of the job I I really enjoy. And kind of my interest in wine is a little like that, where I just, I like to explore uh, different regions or, or countries. Um, and it's just, yeah, like you said, it's it, there's parallels to um, to being able to explore places through, through that. Also with that, it's about sharing it with friends and, Two of my best friends are both um, like they're in the industry, the liquor industry, and very knowledgeable about wine. So we can, you know, have a, a bottle or two together and just talk about the wine and talk about other stuff. And it's just it's a fun, fun thing to kind of share. Well, perfect. Um, I hope this summer you get to enjoy a nice white wine before I understand your, your season ramps up again uh, later in July. Yeah. So um we have a little bit of stuff at the very, very tail end of July. I'm not 100% sure what my schedule will be, but then definitely in uh, in August until mid-October, it's going to be um, a lot more, I think, consistent and, uh, and filled in schedule than it was at the start of the year. So that'll be exciting. And there's a lot of really cool races and races that I have done and really enjoy doing uh, in the tail end of the year. So I'm excited. Right on. Good luck with the racing. And yeah, I hope it goes well. Thank you very much. Thanks for the chat, Matthew. (laughs) 
And that's the episode. It's written and edited by me, Matthew Piaro. I had help from web editors Terry McCall and Lily Hansen-Gillis. The Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast is produced by Adam Killick. He composed the music, too. Thanks to Ontario Creates for its support. And thank you for listening. Please rate and review the show, rise safely, and I'll talk to you later.